Just before the feast in 2012, I received an email from a teenage girl in another part of the United States, and the email said, I'm sending a package to you, and it will arrive at the feast at the meeting hall location, which was going to be in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania. So I didn't know what to expect, though. That's nice, thoughtful, feast gift maybe. So a few days later there, this big box arrives, and it's delivered to me, and I open it up, and inside was a large notebook and a note that read something to this effect that last year at the feast in St. Augustine, Florida, at the uh, teen Bible study, you mentioned how the kings of Israel had to write for themselves a copy of the law. And she said in the note, well, I decided to do that. And when I finished Deuteronomy, I decided to keep going. And just before the feast this year, I completed writing the entire Bible. And I thought you would like to see it. Your friend gave her name. And in that box was a huge, it must have been a five inch binder. And I opened it up and inside was the entire Bible handwritten in this fine little handwriting, very precise and neatly done. And I was just stunned. Of course, she wanted it back. And I was happy to send it back with somebody from her area. But uh, a couple of months later at the Winter Family Weekend, I saw her and we were talking about this project. And I said, so what did that do for you? And she said, well, it was rather amazing. She said, it gave me an entirely different view and understanding of the Bible. She said, I saw things I'd never really seen before. And right in the middle of writing something, I would find myself going off to study something about what that meant. She said, I learned so much and all sorts of new things. Well, the teen Bible study the year before in St. Augustine was titled Deuteronomy 17 for Teenagers. Deuteronomy 17 for Teenagers. What do you find in Deuteronomy 17 about teenagers? Well, basically nothing per se. Uh, in fact, they might not have even thought of the word teenagers back then. Most of us here don't realize the word teenager, the concept of teenager, is basically a recent social phenomenon and only in certain parts of the Western world. Most societies throughout history and even today, you were either a child or an adult. There was not this sort of in-between phase. In fact, some societies, you know, have this ritual one day you're a child, you go through some ritual, the next day you are an adult. So no, Deuteronomy 17 says nothing about teenagers. But we do find a section there, it's only seven verses long, that forms the foundational instructions that God established for the kings of the nation. We might say today if we came to that, oh, that's for the kings, I'll skip that. There are only 44 monarchies on the earth today that have kings or queens, and 16 of them are ruled over by Queen Elizabeth. So you could say, well, there's only 28 people this applies to, right? Um, well, I suppose you could say that if you're looking at it by the letter of the law, but we know that we are supposed to look at things by the spirit of the law. We are supposed to draw out the principles of all of the things that we read here, and when you look at this section, it's not hard to see how the principles for kings extend far beyond only kings. And I was using that text to try to show the teenagers at that Bible study that these are fundamental, vital, essential principles to succeeding as a husband or as a wife, as a father, a mother, a camp counselor, doing any kind of service in the church, in your business life, in your social life. The principles here are timeless. Basically, they deal with being a good person who can influence other people in good ways. And I was stressing to them that as teenagers, it's not too early in life to see how these principles applied to their lives. In these instructions, we find some foundational principles of leadership, not only for kings, but for everybody, and particularly for the people of God. I was really uh, appreciative of the chance to speak today because we just finished five 
hour-long classes at Foundation Institute on this subject of the heart of a godly leader. Then Mr. Horchek said, you need to cover this at the FMP session in one hour. So tomorrow, you're getting the Reader's Digest version. But as I looked at that, I thought, you know, I can cover one element of that today because this is for everybody. We are here, yes, it's a leadership development weekend, but you know, in a sense, aren't we here every weekend for leadership development? Isn't what we come for every single weekend for leadership development because God says we are all going to be what? Kings and priests in his kingdom. And why? Why is that? Because we understand that God wants his children to be helping him in turning the world around, to be an influence on lives changing the lives of all humanity. He wants us to be part of the team and his family that works to fulfill his purpose for which he created life, and that is to bring many sons into glory. But if we are going to do that then, it is now that we are preparing for that. He is preparing us at this time. When Christ returns, he's not going to take a couple of years to give us leadership training. He wants us to be able to step right into that role of leading and guiding people and restoring his way of life to the earth. So no matter who we are or where we are in life, no matter what age, what our backgrounds are, we find the principles of godly leadership are important for all of us to consider. Now, I use the term godly leadership very purposefully. We're not simply talking about leadership. We're talking about godly leadership, and that is vastly different. Christ had to make that clear. Numerous times he talked about the way the world thinks about leadership. And he showed over and over again how they are missing the mark on this issue of leadership, just like we miss the mark on everything else. Christ told the disciples, it cannot be that way among you. Just can't be. We have to have a godly mind. So what are we talking about when we say godly leadership? There are probably a number of ways we could define it, but pulling from several scriptures, let me, let me put a few key phrases together from several scriptures that we can frame it this way. Godly leadership occurs when you exercise righteousness with the right motive to serve in order to help other people spiritually mature. It's the exercising of righteousness to serve all people in helping them develop spiritual maturity. Isn't that what God is doing with us? He's righteous, he's our leader, and he is working to serve humanity, to serve us by helping us. He is always there, to, he's devoted to helping us develop spiritual maturity so that we can lead more godly lives and then be in his eternal family. And by doing so, he expects us to in turn affect other people. That is leadership in a godly way. And by that definition, nobody is exempt. It applies to every single person. Now, that's not what when you say leadership in the world today, what most people think of, they think of, oh, it's some designated position, some designated title. That may include that. Godly leadership certainly has elements of it, but, but that, it doesn't have to. Sometimes exercising righteousness to serve people and help them develop spiritually may be due to your position. Let's say Mr. Burnett, as a camp director for a week at summer camp, he is in a designated position and he is expected to influence people. That is his job. And that is something that, that he does well. It may be that obvious, or it may be as subtle as a camper who is just doing the right thing, setting the right example, never saying a word even, but having a good influence 
on his or her peers. That too is leadership. Leadership occurs when you have an influence on someone, and it happens in the church of God all the time, and God uses that. Ultimately, it's God who is directing our lives, but so often, how much does He use other people as tools to accomplish His work in affecting someone's life? So, living His way is not just for our personal benefit. It is going to help others in one way or another. Let me illustrate it this way, ask you a question, and let me see your hands. How many of you have ever had your personal spiritual maturity affected in a positive way by another person in the church? Look at the hands. Of course, it may be by things that are said, understanding that you get, talking with somebody, counseling from, with, with a friend, getting advice, getting direction, getting encouragement, but other people have benefited. You have benefited from other people. Now let me ask you the follow-up question. How many of you have ever influenced someone else in their developing of spiritual maturity? Oh, come on. I know you're shy and I know you're humble, but let me put it this way. You may not even know that you have influenced somebody else. Have you ever watched somebody's example and been positively impressed and encouraged by somebody else's example? Despite what happened to Mrs. Ghosh that Mr. Horchek was reading about, you read what her husband said, and sometimes the faith that you see in somebody just is so encouraging. No doubt every one of you have maybe not even known that somebody else was watching your example. You have had influences. Do you have children? Then your hand should have gone up. Do you have a husband or wife? Your hand should have gone up. Have you ever talked to a friend about God's way of life and maybe had an influence on them? Your hand should have gone up. God wants us to be leaders. Christ made comment to the disciples that he who, who desires to be great among you should do what? Serve. He did not condemn the desire to be great. He just redefined the path. He wants us to know what greatness is. We should all want to be great in the right things. A great example of love. How would you like to be a great encourager? You want to be a great mom, great dad? There are things that God wants us to be great at and that we should be great at, but they are the things of godliness. They all revolve around the things that are godly and we should be striving to lead and be an example in that way. Because when we influence somebody's life in a positive, godly way, we are exercising godly leadership. And we are positioned every day to influence other people. Sometimes it's in big ways, Sometimes it's in very small ways, but when we have the influence of leadership, it needs to be godly. So we need to understand godly principles. Let's go to Deuteronomy today. We're basically going to stay right here. It is one of many places where you can find principles about godly leadership, but it is probably the first area in the Bible that we find specific instruction that was clearly designated to be teaching leadership. Now, interestingly, the Bible has very, very little to say about management. Some people think, well, leaders are the ones who have to run things. The Bible doesn't say much about management. You can find an example. Jethro told Moses, you know, how about setting up captains of tens, hundreds, and thousands? Okay, that was some management advice, but that was not the model set for all time for God's people. For the time and the place, it was good management. Paul told Titus that he should go and set in order the things that need to be fixed in the church and appoint elders in every city. But that's pretty general instruction, isn't it? What does set in order mean? The Bible doesn't say much at all about management. Its focus is on leadership and when it talks about leadership, it really zeroes in on the heart. 
what is the heart of a leader? That is the model that comes out of Deuteronomy 17 that God laid down first of all. This is critically important. The context in Deuteronomy, like I said, is instructions for kings. But it applies to so many areas. Let's um, go there. And the first thing that you will really notice if you think about it, in a sense, God is telling all the kings, you have to govern yourself first in a godly manner in order to lead others. Deuteronomy 17, in verse 14, he said, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Wrong motive. God, you know, it was going to be centuries before this happened. But it's like God knew it was going to happen because he just knew human nature. He knew at some point Israel would say, yeah, we want to do it like everybody else. And you remember when it first happened, God told Samuel, they want a king, we'll give them a king. And Samuel quit feeling bad about it. They didn't reject you, they were rejecting me from being king over them. They had a king, but you know, like, like humans are, we want to do it like other humans do. But nevertheless, God still wanted them, if you're going to have a king, I want you to have a good one. You know, I want my people to have a good king. So he said, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now there's a lot that we could say about that. There can only be one king. But he said... Make sure it's one from among your brethren. Now, even most carnal nations realize that that's a, a good thing, that whoever leads the nation really ought to be from that nation. You know, it's just, it's sort of common sense because if you're from that nation, it's more likely, I won't say it's always likely because it isn't, but it's more likely that you would have a greater identity with the people of that nation, you would have a greater love for that country, you would have a greater kinship, which should give one a greater commitment toward those people of the nation. You understand the traditions, you understand the ways of the people. So it would benefit the people of the land to have somebody who was from among them be their king. But let's look at it from the point of the king. How does it benefit the king to know and to always remember that he was from among his brethren? What benefit is that to the leader himself to always remember I am from among my brethren? Let's say if you were the king for oh, 30 years, why is it important? 30 years after you took the throne to know that my history is from among my brethren. What role does that play in the heart? What role, let me say, should it play in the heart? Doesn't always, a lot of hearts go astray. But what role should it play? What is important about knowing where you came from? What's important about that? Well, actually, it's not just about your citizenship. Now, at first glance, you say, well, let's make sure they're, they're a citizen of this country. It's not just about your citizenship. The importance of it primarily has to do with one's heart. You know, by the time Israel finally got a king, by the time they reached their fourth generation, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, by the time they reached their fourth generation, the king was out of touch. He was totally out of touch with the people he was to be leading. He was technically a citizen. 
He was technically from among his people, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, he was not. You can read the story in 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam takes over when Solomon dies. The people come to him and say, hey, can you cut us a little slack? We've been really overburdened for a long time and we need some, we could use a little easing up. Rehoboam goes to the elders who served under his father. And he said, it's interesting how it's, I don't, I don't want to read too much into it, but it is interesting how it's stated in 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam says, how should I answer these people? I read that and say, these people? Why not say, how should I answer my brethren? It's a total change of tone when you say, how should I answer my brethren instead of, how do I answer these people? Is that the way he looked at them? Well, the elders said, you know, they didn't even answer his question. They gave him some good advice, but they didn't give him an answer. They said, if you will be a servant, and if you will serve them and speak good things to them, they will serve you. What, he, what they meant by that, they'll gladly follow you if you'll serve them. It's interesting, the elders said, if you will be a servant to these people, and I wonder if they were, you know, the way I would envision it being said was, yeah, these people, is that, is that the way you want to talk to them? Well, these people will serve you if you will serve them. But he didn't listen. And it's interesting that it says he asked advice then of the young men who had grown up with him. Who was Rehoboam? He was a palace kid. He had grown up isolated, undoubtedly, in the palace with a certain small ring of buddies, and they're the ones who said, you let the hammer down on them. Totally wrong advice. Totally wrong advice. I wonder if Rehoboam, in his mind, was one from among his brethren. Did he keep that? Did he have that sense? These are my brethren. There's more to just being one from among your brethren than just your physical lineage. Let's put it in um, some practical terms, today's terms. Some of you young people, teenagers, young adults, let's say you're going to be a camp counselor this year. You know what you are? You are the king of the dorm. You're the queen, the queen of the, of the little kids, and your realm may be 12 constituents, but nevertheless, for a week, you are their leader. You're their leader. What are you thinking? Are you remembering where you came from? Do you remember what it was like to be a child once at that age? Do you remember what you were thinking? You were a child once that age. Do you remember what it was like? What are the needs of a 12-year-old or 15-year-old spiritually? Emotionally, physically, mentally. What is important to the development of a child at that age? How do you establish unity among 12 people? How do you spot problems and then help them mature as they address those problems? What about when you have to discipline? It's important because being a counselor is not just riding herd on a group of kids for a week. Godly leadership as a counselor means that you're thinking what it was like to be one from among your brethren, those little kids that you were once like and now have a chance to influence. You spend time thinking about that. If you were a father or a mother, you were a child once. Do you remember what it was like to be a, a brother at that stage? You know, Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. How many children have been deeply affected by fathers or mothers provoking them to wrath, and then they grow up and do the same thing to their kids? And it's just simply 
never learn. Bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord means to do that with God's perspective, with, with God's perspective. You are king over your family, over those children for a while. For a few years, you have rulership over their lives. And Deuteronomy 17 applies. And when you understand God's plan, that puts your child rearing in a giant perspective, in a hugely different perspective than most people have. We approach our child rearing realizing that in the bigger picture, these children are also potentially our brothers and sisters spiritually. They are going to grow up we can look at our little kids and our little grandchildren and realize that looking at them in a spiritual light, they're going to grow up, they're going to begin understanding their purpose, they're going to have the same chance as us to turn to God, to repent, to receive His Spirit, to go into adulthood, and to be in His family. And someday in the family of God, we will be brothers and sisters. And we are from among our brethren looking at it in God's sight, we have then a different type of respect. We respect their potential. We respect and lead them with the idea and the intent that these are not just my kids, but these are someday my family in the kingdom of God, my brothers, my sisters. It's a spiritual approach. We respect our children as God's children. The king was supposed to respect the subjects in Israel as God's children. It was important for the king to remember that he was from among his brethren so he would lead them with respect, with humility, knowing that these Israelites are the children of God. And his main purpose in leadership was to steer them toward God. That was the greatest way a king would serve. Now that reminds us then of a basic principle of godly leadership. Godly leaders are there to serve. What did Christ say about that? He did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, let's say child rearing or being a camp counselor, it doesn't matter. It's not serving to do whatever they want. That's not what I'm talking about by serving. To be clear, when we serve people, we serve their needs, not their wants. As a parent, you're not there just to fill every want the child has. You're there to fulfill what they need. And what is it they need? What do they need? It is your job as the king or the queen of the home to find out how to help that child grow and mature, to be healthy emotionally, physically, spiritually, how to develop their health that way. You are the one in control of helping that child develop them. As you serve them by providing those needs, you are leading them. They work hand in hand. Godly leadership is a job of service. It's not a job of reward. It's not a job that puts us in a different position so now I can get something. That's not what the godly mind is thinking of. When the king was given responsibility to guide the nation, it was not because he was superior to his brethren. That's what that principle is here in Deuteronomy 14, 15. One from among your brethren. It tells him, I have a responsibility and a position, but it's not because I am superior to anyone. Likewise, when we are given a responsibility in the church, it's not because we are superior to, to anyone. These are very important concepts. They have huge implications. The spiritual implications of that one thing affects the way we go about our business. It affects our view of people. It affects our attitude. It molds and shapes our approaches as we carry out authority. There is nothing wrong with authority. There is nothing wrong with responsibility or government. Those are all things God created. There's nothing wrong. It's the way 
that it's used. It's the way that people approach it that creates the problems. So this is what is important in the mind. Mr. Orchek talked about serving at the feast. Maybe you'll sign up and the feast coordinator contacts you and says, you know, I want you to be in charge of the ushers this year. <sighs> King of the ushers. <laughs> All right. All right. And you gather your crew of 12 that opening night and you have the ushers meeting and you can say, men, you know, I've been watching people at this feast of God get lax for years now. And I'm not going to have that in my house. No, sir, we're going to start fixing some things around here. This usher crew is going to run a tight ship, and people are going to do things right. And I'll give you an example. These latecomers, keep that front row open. When they come in late, we're going to march them right down here, and we're going to break them of that habit. Not in my house. <laughs> you know, whoever is in charge does have authority. The usher, the ushering crew has a responsibility. They have the power to make decisions where people go and when they will do it. But someone who remembers, you know, I am one from among my brethren. I know what it's like to be a brother or a sister who is frazzled because they're running late because the kid threw up and the car had a flat tire and they're coming into church late. And I understand. I understand. I remember what it was like. These are my brethren, not my subjects. They will be thinking, how would I want to be treated? I remember how I, how it is. What's the best way to approach people? I have an opportunity. I have a responsibility to serve and to help, but God wants me to do it the right way. The right way. That's what distinguishes godly leadership. And who is our model? Who's the best king you've ever seen? Um, how about Philippians 2, where it speaks of the king of kings. And it says in Philippians 2, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, all to serve us. He was the most admired king that we can think of, head and shoulders above any other, and he was a servant, came to service. He serves us to this day. 2,000 years after being a human being and coming to this earth as a human being, 2,000 years later, he has not forgotten what it is like. Christ leads us. He serves us. He's always there to help. We are never alone because he's always with us, as we heard. He counsels us. He intervenes for us. He's patient. He's tenderhearted. He's firm. He leads with firmness, tells us what to do. He doesn't compromise. But he is a perfect servant, and that's what he kept telling the disciples. You have to follow my example of leadership and have a heart of service. He was from among his brethren. He came in the likeness of men. As a result, what are we told in Hebrews 4? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, because we have that king who, can, who understands us, we go boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace in time of need. What a relationship that is. Remembering that you are one from among your brethren. And what that principle means reminds us of how to treat people, how to deal with people. Godly leadership is strong because it leads in love and humility. Now, the Bible is full of examples of kings who uh, failed to keep that in mind, and some who did. The very first king, Saul, forgot all about it. 
he forgot this principle. He tried to blame his brethren for his shortcomings. He isolated himself. He came to fear his brethren because his heart was all messed up. The next king was David, a man who knew he was to be king, but he spent years and years and years on the run, hiding in caves, sleeping in the dirt with his men, taking care of those who followed him. 1 Samuel 18 says, David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. That's what carnal leadership, that's where it goes. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. David was a man who understood. David's reign, keep your finger in Deuteronomy 18, there's a, such an important summary of his life in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, this is a summary not only of David, but of the, probably one of the greatest things that could be written on somebody's tombstone as far as their life. In verse uh, 70 of Psalm 78, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, literally, <coughs> sorry, literally and physically. David was physically herding sheep, but he was also taken from the sheepfolds of God's people. He goes on to say, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and the skillfulness of his hands. But David, for the most part in his life, remembered that he was one from among his brethren. There's more that meets the eye to that, that whole concept of understanding what that means in its broadest terms. Some things don't change just because one becomes the king. Integrity doesn't change. Humility doesn't change. Love isn't supposed to change. Treating one another with respect the way we would want to be treated doesn't change. And it doesn't matter what position of leadership you may be in. Back to Deuteronomy 17. The next two verses begin what we can call the thou shalt not section. What you shall not do. Verse 16, he says, but he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. What is that talking about? Going back to Egypt. I think we, we probably understand that. The spiritual parallels in the Bible that we talk about every days of unleavened bread about going back to sin. Don't go back that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So don't multiply horses or cause people to. Don't multiply wives, don't multiply gold. So what does that have to do with us today? Most of us probably say, I don't know, I don't even want a horse. Uh, wives, yeah, we might have a few more pieces of gold, you know, it might not, that might make me a little happier. But wives, nope. What is he talking about here? That is for us today. What's the heart issue? What are the principles here? You know, Mr. Franks is not anxious to get the COVID restrictions lifted in Egypt so he can run and buy that horse that we've had our eyes on. We've had nobody submitting papers to the doctrine committee trying to figure out some way we can wrangle the scripture that will justify us having multiple wives. You know, that stuff is... That's, that's not there. So is this irrelevant? You know, not at all. The principles in those statements are really about don't misuse things and don't misuse people. The two most common ways of misusing power. This is about an abuse of power. Don't go that way. Therefore, if you look at it like that, these principles apply to every one of us.
There is a key phrase in these verses that give us the principle. There are two words that are repeated three times in verses 16 and 17. Does your eye fall on them quickly? Two words repeated three times, for himself. It's the approach, it's the attitude, I am in a position of being able to influence something that I can get more for myself. That's a heart issue. Leaders of all stripes find themselves in positions where if they misuse their authority, they may be able to increase some things for themselves. But when self-serving creeps in, this is really talking about self-serving. When that creeps in, it creates dangers. Dangers for his followers, dangers for himself. Some of the most common problems in marriage and family situations stem from people doing things for himself or herself. So common. What are the dangers for a leader's followers if the leader gets into a self-serving for himself mentality? What are the dangers for his followers? Well, basically two. Number one, they may try to be just like him because they start getting the idea that's how you get ahead. So they will either try to be like him and emulate him or number two, they will resent it. They will resent that leadership and it will create division and disrespect and maybe even rebellion. Neither is good. Both are terrible for the health of the body, whether the body is a nation, a family, a business, a school, a church, doesn't matter. What is the danger to the leader himself if he falls into a for himself mentality? Well, as he becomes self-focused, he will become blinded, more and more blinded to the needs of those that he is there to serve. He will lose humility. He will lose a sense of reality of what it's like for those he is leading. He will become selfish, greedy, arrogant, and that's all evil. God never created leadership to be used for self-serving. That's not godly. Now, we have a different culture today, so how would you reword these verses if you were talking, let's say, to your children, or giving a Bible study to teenagers, or giving a compass check to the campers? How would you reword these verses? Do these apply? Well, you ever see corruption in government? <laughs> Do we ever see things that are going on in the world? Do we ever see leaders today doing things for themselves? It's not hard to look around and see that. Godly leadership is the opposite. It's a different heart. It's a heart of giving to others. It's a heart of helping others. It's a heart of giving of our time. Instead of getting money for himself, he's giving his resources. You could say, if you want to put it in an old familiar expression, it's the way of get versus the way of give. Pretty simple, profoundly affecting though. Let me give you a real life situation. My father is with me here today. I'm going to risk embarrassing him because I didn't tell him about this story. When I was somewhere around 14, 15, 16, somewhere in my middle teen years, in Houston, the spokesman club was on Wednesday nights at a YMCA. And there was, um, there was a place where they had the club, but there was a gymnasium there. And after the club was over, we rented the gym from 9 to 11 on Wednesday nights so those who wanted to could play basketball. So several of us teenagers, uh, the Trey Big Boys and me in particular, would, would be there almost all the time. And we would sit and do our homework in the snack room while the, our dads were in club. And uh, afterwards, we would be so excited to go play ball. Um, my dad did not play basketball. He wasn't really interested in basketball, but most of the time he would stay another two hours after club, 
just so I could play basketball with the boys and men. Sit there on the sidelines, watching, chatting with some others maybe. Uh, then we would drive home. He would get in bed about midnight and then get up at 5 a.m. to go to work. There was one year he wasn't in spokesman club. And most Wednesdays after work, I would meet him at the door and say, Dad, can you take me, can you take me to basketball tonight? About the time he should have been going to bed, he was often getting in the car, driving us a half hour into town, and sitting and watching me have a good time while uh, he was just doing nothing. You know, when I was that age, back then, I was too young and immature to comprehend or even appreciate his sacrifice. He was sacrificing. Years later, he told me, you know, sometimes that was so hard to do. There were some nights I just wanted to go to bed. I, I was dead tired. But I also knew that it was a good time. Those were always times when you were in a good mood because you got to go play basketball. You got to be with your friends. And he said, there were times when I would see something you were doing or some direction you were going that I really needed to correct as a parent. But you can't deal with a 15-year-old the same way you deal with a 10-year-old. So he said, I often took you to those times because on the trips there and the trips back, we had an hour where we could talk. And you were always in a good mood. And when you're in a good mood, you were receptive. And you would listen. And he said, there were lots of times I corrected you without you even knowing you were being corrected. Because we could just talk. And that's what it was, it was all about. That's why he did it. He was sacrificing sleep, sacrificing time with my mother for nothing more than to help fill the needs of someone for whom he was responsible to lead. It was his responsibility to lead. That's what leadership is so much of the time. Sacrificing self for others, not sacrificing others for oneself. But God knew that was such a common issue that he addressed it right here. That's what was being addressed in principle. Godly leadership lies at the heart, a heart in a heart of service, not selfishness. This is where so many have gone wrong, even in the church. Self-serving, me first, my way, for himself, for herself people, weaken all relationships. They make for bad husbands, bad wives, bad fathers, bad mothers, bad bosses, bad workers, bad friends, bad ministers. It doesn't matter. It's either good or bad. And if self-seeking is there, it won't help. Now we come to the you shall do this list. What do you need to do to start on the path of being a godly leader? What does God say? Well, you know, the king, you need to go to college, make sure you get a good education, get that degree. You're probably going to need one in economics, uh, one in geopolitics, probably take some management courses. And, uh, you know, some military service would be good because you're going to be the commander in chief. And probably take some personality and speech development training because that'll help you sort of, you know, really win friends and influence people. He doesn't say any of that, does he? Now, those things can be helpful, but that is not the basis of godly leadership. Verse 18, it shall also be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. The Pentateuch, what we would call today the law, the first five books of the Bible. This is where the teenager I was telling you about at the beginning got the idea. I did not give it to them as an assignment. We were just reading through this. At that feast, the Bible study was trying to lift their eyes to this big picture that God is preparing them to be kings and priests. And the time to learn it is now because God was interested in their developing godliness. And what does it say in 1 Timothy 4.8? Godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and the one that is to come. Godly leadership 
has promises for your life now. And he says in verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. And five things are going to happen, God says. Five things should come from this. So that, what's the reason for doing it? So that number one, he'll learn to fear the Lord his God. And number two, be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Number three, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. Number four, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. And number five, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This is going to carry on down. The beginning of this task was the king is supposed to sit down and write this law. Write it, keep it, read it. You ever thought about what a task that first step would be? Just to write it. Just to write it. My Bible here, the first five books of the Bible, cover 253 pages. Hand write it. I tried a little bit of that yesterday, just for curiosity. I began writing out chapter 17, and then I realized I'm going to read it later. I need to slow down so I can write it in a legible form that's readable later. I don't think God's intent was, them for, was for them to just sit down and scribble it out as fast as they could. You know, it took me about 25 minutes to handwrite chapter 17. I started calculating how that fit into the whole five books, and for me, to write the entire Pentateuch, I estimated at that pace it would take 95 hours. How many days would that be if you were doing it eight hours a day? Quickly, uh, well, you can't do it eight hours a day. Can you imagine the hand cramps if you're writing continuously for eight hours a day? There's no way I could do that. What about four hours a day? And I'm not even sure that's really reasonable, but if I had four hours a day, it would take 24 days. So I got to that point, I thought, man, 24 days, then it realized, it hit me. I am writing it with this handy-dandy little ink pen. What did they have to write it on? They had to write it on a skin of an animal or on some papyrus with a little stylus that they had to dip into the ink. What would that add to your time? Double it, triple it, quadruple it maybe? To hand write it that way. This would be a major project for a new king, a considerable physical and mental effort stretching probably over several months, especially to do it right. This is the last time you hear anything about this. I wonder how many kings actually did this. From the behaviors of a lot of them, you think they probably didn't do it. Now, in this modern age, there's something that seems a little quaint and maybe old-fashioned about doing that, doesn't it? King could today could say, can I just type it out? No. Can I just read it and then cut and paste and, on my computer? No. Can I have my secretary do it and then I'll just read it and sign off on it? No. You sit down like everybody else did. <laughs> I think God would tell that to any king today. You do that. Imagine if the President of the United States had to hole up for 30 days and hand write the law before he took office. You know, it's interesting. I searched yesterday on Google, advantages of handwriting. There's been some interesting science go into this. They have shown, studies have shown that writing by hand actually trains the brain in different parts to function in different ways than typing or even printing, and it helps with the cognition. The physical touch of a pen to paper combined with a repetitive process improves cognitive function and development. Very interesting. It also improves memory. Studies with history students, they had some type their notes and they had others handwrite their notes. Which students retained the most from the lessons, would you guess? Those who handwrote their notes. We, when we have, it said, the physical experience of using our hands, there is an increased comprehension and recall, and it also improves the student's ability to put in their own words what the lesson was about. Not just parroting, 
but putting in their own words to show that they got comprehension. They have a deeper interpretation. Handwriting that said helps us slow down and more fully engage with our thoughts. The brain engages differently when we write something by hand. We're better able to see abstracts when we're writing by hand. So, you know, God was asking a lot of a king. He was asking him to invest a lot of time and effort to do this, but it was for a good reason. And he said, these five things are going to result. These are five good things. When we, when we look at these things and we say, you know, if God, if God said to write it and read it all the days of your life, and it's going to help you learn to fear God, help you be more careful, keep your heart from being lifted above your brethren, keep you from turning aside, and all these things will help prolong your days. You know, the next question we ought to ask, why? How does that work? Why is it that if, if we read all the days of our lives, if we really have this impressed and we read all the days of our lives, the, God, the law of God, why will that help us do those things? It's, it's really important to understand cause and effect for things like this. How does it work? For example, how does reading the law keep your heart from being lifted above your brethren? How does reading the law uh, make you more carefully observe the laws of God? Well, when you study and think about the law of God and analyze how it affects the workings of the mind, then you could see how it would have an impact on, on all of these areas. Now, let me just point out a few things to consider about the law of God. Humans have their laws, and laws are fine, but this is God's law. It's God's law, not a human law, that puts it in an entirely different category than all human laws, because God's law is based on spiritual development. It has spiritual elements to it. The law of God reveals a lot about the way God thinks. And if we understand the way God thinks, we understand God. We understand the mind of God the way He is. It is the basis of godliness. So the fact that it is God's law and not man's keeps us in a relationship with God. Man's laws do not create a relationship with the government, but God's laws are designed to create a relationship with Him and with one another. If we keep the right relationship with God and His way of life in balance, then our relationship with other human beings is also going to be in balance. That affects something like how we view our fellow humans, our perspective of them. Another element of God's law is that it is a law that is focused outwardly. God's law is focused outwardly. It is a law, we often say, of love toward God, love toward neighbor, but it's looking out. It's looking toward God and neighbor, not self. The law of God is a law of love, and it keeps us operating in the love of God. Therefore, by design, you could say the law of God keeps us focused on our responsibilities, not our importance. One's heart being lifted above his brethren comes from somebody feeling like they are more important. The law of God, by its design, focuses us on responsibilities that we have towards others, not our importance. Love does not lift its heart above others. God's law, furthermore, defines sin. So it keeps us from getting morally confused or getting watered down. Man's laws changes its definitions of sin all the time. God's law doesn't. It keeps our senses tuned to what is right and toward what is wrong. And therefore, it helps us think about life in terms of no, this is morally right or this is morally wrong. God's law is not changing that way. It gives us stability. It gives us something concrete. It helps us think about right and wrong, not what do I want to do or not want to do. 
We don't argue with God about what we want to do or what we don't want to do. We look at God's law and we say, this is right, this is wrong. God's law tells us that. The human heart, we know, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the person who's studying God's law can know it. You can know it. God's law helps us understand it. God's law helps us understand how the human mind thinks, how the carnal mind thinks. So you take a point like that about one's heart being lifted above his brethren. The pride in human thinking is what makes that possible. The pride in human thinking may, may, may tempt us to think more highly of ourselves than our brother. But when our mind is in the law of God, we are reminded, no, that's wrong. That's not right. That is not right. Human thinking justifies being superior to others. The law of God helps us not justify that. It reminds us that sin, and we know we're told, again, not to go there. Human thinking uses other people. God's law helps us to stop that kind of thinking. Another factor about the law of God, the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror. James 1, 22. James 1 talks about how doers of the law, doers of the law say, and it says, if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face in a mirror. Now, here's the, here's the point where we have to interject. Just having the law itself doesn't do enough. It's those who choose to do what the law says. Those who are responsive and whose heart is turned toward, I really want to follow what this law says. Anyone who is a doer is like a man observing, or uh, who is a hearer is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, but you have to look at it in order to continue. You have to look at in that mirror and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Doers of the law are like those who look into that mirror. They use the law of God as a mirror and they see what kind of reflection. They use that as the standard of what they want to see in themselves. What am I seeing? Is, this, is what I'm seeing in my life the same as what the, the, the law of God is telling me to be like. And they look at it, they look at that mirror, and if they see something in their lives that is contrary to the law of God, they immediately go to work on changing that so that they can conform to God's way. Looking into the law then is so critically important in, being, in remembering not to turn to the right or turn to the left. It's so critically important in all, living in awe of God, fear of God. It's the mirror of God's law that helps see our lives. So in other words, when we are continually studying God's law, it becomes a filter for all of the information that comes into our mind. That becomes the filter. And it helps us develop a discerning heart. And it helps us discern the wrong thoughts that can creep in. It helps us tell us the right thoughts that we need to be thinking, the right direction to go. There are so many aspects of this that when you really meditate on that, on why does the law of God affect somebody so deeply? So there are a lot of things we could come up with, but by its nature, a continual study of God's law will keep us within the, it'll have that effect of having these five things listed here go to work in our lives. It keeps us on the right track. And if our relationship with God is right, what God knew here is that if, if, if we get that foundation right, other things will fall into place. Other things will fall into place. Our dealings with other people will be better and they'll be right because they will be a reflection of our relationship with God. Seven scriptures. That's all God said here about what kings should do and not do to be effective godly leaders, to be on the road to leading the nation the way he wanted. Why are these things so important? Because they are the core of what goes on in the heart. They are at the core of what goes on in the heart.
Later, uh, when Israel and Judah did have some kings, and you read their stories, as you read their stories in the future and look at those case studies, you will see some kings that ruled only for a few days and some ruled for decades. Some were good and some were bad and some were in between. There were some good kings who went bad and there were some bad kings who turned good. Israel has all, and Judah have all sorts of stories about those kings. But if you want an interesting study, anytime you read about one of the kings, analyze them in the light of Deuteronomy 17. Analyze their rulership in the light of what you read here and see what you can conclude. And I will bet you that in almost every case, in some form or fashion, their success or their failure will be traced back to those fundamental principles that God gave at the beginning. God knew what he was saying. He wanted his people to have good leadership. So whether you are a king or a queen, a husband or a wife, father, a mother, a friend, a brother, a sister. It doesn't matter in any position of influencing somebody's life. The Bible is full of instruction that pertains to how to do it in a godly way, how to exercise righteousness in order that you can serve people in ways that it will help them develop their own spiritual maturity. You might be very fundamental. Fundamental doesn't mean easy. It can be hard, but it is the basis. You know, when you think about what God is saying here in summary, basically he says, have a heart of humility and service. Keep my word, the law of God, uppermost in your mind all the days of your lives. If we don't, all the other leadership factors that we can think of won't be based on godliness. In that way, it's very simple. The more we can dedicate ourselves to understanding God, His Word, and live our lives according to the law of God, the more we will be a godly influence on everyone else.